Welcome to A Vague Knowledge of Everything. I am Rosie. I'm Hope. How are you today, Rosie? I am... I'm getting hot mad already because of <laughs> what we're going to talk about. We're going to continue talking about cannabis, but before that, I want to have like another little rant because I it's not exactly a rant, I guess. I just don't... I don't understand what people think goes on in restaurants, like from the perspective of someone who's worked food service a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that like some of this TikTok stuff is now starting to show me that people don't realize what happens to their food because I've seen several videos come out. Like there was one about, by the way, this is completely unrelated to anything um, in the later episode, but I saw uh, a TikTok of someone making uh, food from Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it was supposed to be this big, like, gotcha, oh my god, like, look at this, this is horrible, and it was for making, like, powdered mashed potatoes, and yeah, those aren't good, but I have to wonder, like, did people really think they were making mashed potatoes back there? Like, seriously? Did you think I that mean, was happening? I don't know, because they're so good. <laughs> they taste so yeah, well, yummy. And, and and that's fine. And the thing is, I'm not shaming people who, who do like them. Like, that's okay. But, but what I am saying is, like, people need to, like, put a little bit more thought into where their food's coming from. Because, like, another one I saw was there's a Wendy's worker who was, you know, like, lifting the veil on their practices. And it was like, oh, the leftover uh, dried out hamburgers are the ones, you know, that, like, aren't good enough. They get put in the, the chili, you know. But... <sighs> <laughs> okay, but you look shocked. I'm not shocked at all by that. Like that, I'm not either. That seems... I mean, it makes sense. It's just like hearing it. It's like, oh, that sounds yeah. bad. And it's like, well, it's fast food. So like, it's probably not great. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, I there's a lot of shortcuts and a lot of things that happen with food, particularly if you go to a chain restaurant where everything comes out the same every time. Like yeah. they have that down to a science. They're maximizing the space uh, in their like in the area where you can eat and they're minimizing Mm -hmm. kitchen space. So they're going to do anything they can to make that easier and having things like powdered mashed potatoes at KFC or, or whatever it is, you know, Mm -hmm. like the French fries at McDonald's, like they're coming in bags as fries and then they get fried, but you know, they're not chopping potatoes back there. And then they don't ever go bad. (laughs) They don't ever go bad. Yeah, and the thing is, I I still occasionally eat fast food, but I, I think that people need to understand, like, if you're paying 10 bucks for a meal, you or can't assume that. that someone's back there making, or less than that, you can't assume that someone's back there making that stuff from scratch. Like, and it's kind mm. of ridiculous and out of touch, I think, to think that. Yeah. And th- that's what I think, but I have... Uh, yeah, but like I say, I've got food service background, so I don't really understand that, but I do want to tell people, before you get shocked at those TikTok videos take some time to think about what you think that job is actually like, how much training people get, how much people are being paid. You know, like I can tell you from personal experience that mashed potatoes made by one person aren't necessarily the same as mashed potatoes made by another person, even though it's a very basic thing. So when they want to get things that consistent, that's what they're doing. And it's what they've been doing for years. And it's not just fast food places that do this kind of stuff, guys. If you go to Mount Rushmore in the winter, chances are you're getting powdered mashed potatoes. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I work there, okay? I have. Their cinnamon rolls come frozen. So if you're like, <laughs> ew, if you're grossed out by <laughs> fast food in general, but you do a lot of road traveling and you need to eat on the road, I have a suggestion. Go to Arby's. 
they have a deli fresh menu section you get the turkey bacon ranch sandwich and it comes out and it's like an actual full-size sandwich with like actual lettuce not the dumb lettuce that they put on it (laughs) and like it tastes like a deli sandwich and it's huge it's really filling and it doesn't taste like fast food so if you need to feel like you're eating real food on the road go to arby's which is like most times the opposite of real food because it's the roast beef and plastic cheese which is also really yummy yeah but this this feels like actually eating like something that comes out of like a grocery store so yeah or uh, like or you go to a grocery store and grab some prepared sandwiches or something like that but mm -hmm. i and also you can still just go to fast food just like don't be scandalized when you find out that like (laughs) there's a minimal amount of work that goes into it and it's made to be easy like that's what it is it's they're they're not using i don't like kfc i haven't been in a kfc in maybe 20 years um and that's for a lot of reasons but (laughs) which i won't go into because i don't want to ruin it for people (laughs) but the powdered mashed potatoes like it's it's not that bad come on guys like (laughs) seriously what do you think is happening with your food it's anyway so so i I kind of noticed this as being like a trend where people don't really understand what's going on with food to begin with and if you learned more i think more people would probably eat at home but also like hey there's cooks out there that know what goes on in fast food and we still eat fast food so anyway Mm-hmm. I don't really it's have not, a main point. I'm just surprised that people are surprised. <laughs> it's yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our that's actual not, topic. That's not what we're talking about today. No, all. that's not. We're not talking about fast food today. I just like <laughs> needed to put that somewhere, but I didn't want to make a whole episode about it. Because uh, <laughs> doing a whole episode about fast food would probably make no one want to eat fast food. And yeah, we're talking about right now. fast people. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about about fast people, Uh, but first we're going to talk about uh, weed or cannabis or pot or marijuana or whatever you want to call it, Uh, and we're going to kind of pick up where we left off at our last episode, which was about the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, which I Mm -hmm. semi-titled or subtitled uh, Codifying Racism, which if you haven't listened to it, I would definitely say go listen to that first because... When I say that the laws surrounding cannabis in this country are based on racism, we illustrated that in the last episode. Um, that That is a provable fact. So go back, listen to that if you haven't. Um, I think it will maybe illuminate some things for some people. Uh, but before or- we jump right into this, I do want to mention the Patreon um, we have a Patreon, www.patreon.com slash a vague knowledge of everything. There are tiers as low as $3. And starting pretty soon, we're going to have some exclusive Patreon-only episodes. I think our first one is going to be about Paris Hilton and the abusive school that she was sent to when she was a teenager and how many other teenagers have had that happen to them. And we'll get a little bit more into that uh, and... And yeah, and so anything else that people are interested in hearing about would be great. Um, you can always mm-hmm. let us know. But yeah, so patreon.com, please go and uh, maybe if- toss us a few bucks if you want to support us that way. And if you want to support us by just continuing to listen, that's also cool. If you have a subject that you think you're an expert in and would like to come on and talk about it, please let us know. We love having guests on. It's not a big deal and it's not weird. But you do have to prove you're an expert and you have to have real facts. <laughs> <laughs> Can't just be someone talking about stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm here it. for. 
<laughs> no, you know stuff. The role of right. the annoying sidekick has already taken. <laughs> I think Luna's the annoying sidekick because she's the one who's Aww. always dancing on your keyboard and stuff. She's just a baby. She is. All right. So anyway. I don't have a good segue for this because it's not about babies. <laughs> Let's uh, get into it. Let's get into it. So, as I said, we went over the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. So we're going to start our episode today in the 1940s. Uh, In 1944, the New York Academy of Medicine issued an extensively researched report declaring that contrary to earlier research and popular belief, the use of marijuana did not induce violence, insanity, or sex crimes, or lead to addiction or other drug use. Wow. Uh, yeah, this is completely counter to everything that Harry Anslinger and his cohorts would have you believe uh, as a part of the hearings of the Tax Act. So, oh, plot twist. Yeah, plot twist. Turns out they were wrong because they based everything on racism. <laughs> and racism isn't science. So, yeah. all right. Here's their findings. Uh, they're numbered. Some of them I'm going to have little side notes on. Some of them don't need it. Uh, But we'll just go through here. There's 11 points, I believe. here. No, 12 points. Mm -hmm. So uh, point number one, the introduction of marijuana into this area. Oh, by the way, this was uh, in the borough of Manhattan. That was where they were doing this study. Um, Again, it was 1944. So number one, the introduction of marijuana into this area is recent as as compared to other localities. Uh, Number two, the cost of marijuana is low and therefore within the purchasing power of most persons. Three, the distribution and use of marijuana is centered in Harlem. Four, the majority of marijuana smokers are Blacks and Latin Americans. That's their language, not mine. Uh, Number five, the consensus among marijuana smokers is that the use of the drug creates a definite feeling of adequacy. (laughs) And I could not agree more. I definitely feel a lot more adequate when I can use cannabis. (laughs) I'm just trying to feel some adequacy. Is that too much? Yeah, I'm just trying to feel some adequacy. (laughs) Uh, number six the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word side note uh, I will say that this doesn't mean that some people don't have a problematic relationship with marijuana but I will also say you can get you can have addictive tendencies to a lot of things Mm -hmm. without that thing in particular having addictive potential if that makes sense Um, so basically what they're saying there is they just don't see it leading to addiction in the same way that you'd see that medically with other drugs or with alcohol. Right. Um, but I'm not saying no one ever gets addicted addicted to it, but it is a very low instance. Uh, number seven. Have to do hmm? with, it doesn't always have to do with the weed. It might have to do with the person smoking said weed. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it largely does have more to do with the person smoking it. And like we've said in every other episode about cannabis, it's not for everyone. So for some people, it's going to be harmful, uh, but it is shown to be a lot less harmful than other drugs or than alcohol. Uh, Number seven, the sale and distribution of marijuana is not under the control of any single organized group. Yeah, that's what they found in 1944. I'm not sure if that's the same today, but there it is. Uh, Number eight, the use of marijuana does not lead to morphine or heroin or cocaine addiction, and no effort is made to create a market for these narcotics by stimulating the practice of marijuana smoking. That one's very important because basically almost 80 years ago, we debunked the whole gateway drug theory and people still believe it. Our president still believes it. It's ridiculous. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll get to Biden. Anyway, so uh, 
So yeah, there's the gateway drug theory doesn't make sense. And for a lot of reasons, um, one thing is if you're smoking marijuana and you're using it for any kind of medicinal purpose, which even if people don't say they are, a lot of people are, um, you know, you're using it to be happier, to elevate your mood, to go to sleep, et cetera, all those kind of things. So if you're using it to, uh, to alleviate a specific problem, it really wouldn't make sense to be like, oh, I should try heroin and that'll work better. Like, it's just not right. the mental leap that most people make. And I would argue that the illegalization of cannabis is what has made it the closest to being a gateway drug just because of the legal risk. Because if you if, if you're going to do something that's illegal anyway and go buy some marijuana and, you know, it would be just as illegal to go buy some heroin, a lot more people are going to be like, well, I might as well. But that doesn't right. mean that marijuana is a gateway. It just means that sometimes you find it in the same places. Although I will say that's not often. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, marijuana dealers would never deal anything harder than that. And they don't need to because there's a big market for it in and of itself. Right. Uh, so number nine, marijuana is not the determining factor in the commission of major crimes. So that's nice. Weed doesn't create criminals. Ten, what? marijuana smoking is not widespread among school children. <laughs> so what? this was found in 1944. Um, I don't think I would call it widespread in school children now. I'm sure there's certain areas where it's a lot more accessible, uh, but I, I don't have specific numbers on that. I know we're talking about like middle schoolers and probably high schoolers, but like in my mind, I'm seeing like third graders <laughs> being like, you want to yeah. hit this? <laughs> well, it, and honestly, a lot of prohibitionists would have you believe that like, that's how it works, you know, oh, <laughs> that, that, that they're, you know, kids as young as 10 are using it. So, like <laughs> Eight year olds just being like, yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta try this chronic. <laughs> it's better than baby. paste, let me tell you. <laughs> Those two had a baby and fucked. <laughs> That's what this <laughs> tastes like. <laughs> right. So last two, uh, number 11, juvenile delinquency is not associated with smoking marijuana. And 12, publicity over the catastrophic, the catastrophic effects of marijuana smoking in New York City is unfounded. So basically, they were like... All of this panic is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like it's not leading to the things people are saying it's leading to. Uh, and this is a study that was done by medical professionals, which I would like to remind you, the 1937 Tax Act didn't really provide that much testimony from medical professionals. And the ones who did testify were heavily biased and they were also in the extreme minority. So we're talking like one out of 30 doctors that Harry Anslinger talked to. So just to remind <laughs> you. I just, I just, there's so much hullabaloo around a drug that calms you down. Like, I, know. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, there's so much hullabaloo and it's, it's moralizing that's based on racism, but a lot of people don't mm -hmm. realize that it's based on racism or they don't want to believe that it's based on racism. Mm -hmm. So they just decide that it's wrong and it must be wrong because it's bad for you and otherwise it wouldn't be illegal. And it's just such circular logic because they've never, by, by they, I'm speaking of the federal government, they've never really proved that it's actually bad for you, even though people continue to say that. And <laughs> surprise, yeah. surprise, that's uh, an argument that the... Uh, the U.S. Anti-Doping Administration 
seems to still hold uh, in weirdly high regard. Anyway, but moving on. Uh, 1951 uh, was another sort of... um, So this is another uh, act that really... I mean, it didn't start the war on drugs, but it set it up, I guess. Like, it set up the ability for the war on drugs to exist. Uh, So the Boggs Act of 1951 amended the narcotics... Sorry, the Narcotic Drug Import and Export Act. It set mandatory sentencing for drug convictions... And under this act, a first offense conviction of marijuana possession, so not distribution, possession uh, carried a minimum sentence of two to 10 years and a fine of up to $20,000. So just hugely disproportional. And also they weren't really distinguishing between something less harmful like marijuana and something more harmful like, say, cocaine or heroin. So that's fucked up. <laughs> then moving on to the 1960s, and I know I'm getting going a little bit fast here, but it's because we're going to talk about some specific <laughs> administrations and stuff, and I want to talk about drug scheduling as well. So yeah. there's a lot more stuff I could go into, uh, but also I would recommend everyone read the book Smoke Signals it, by Martin A. Lee. It's just wonderful, and it's packed with info, uh, and a lot of it is about the 60s. So... Uh, Views of drugs changed a lot in the 60s, and mostly they changed because marijuana became very popular on college campuses, Uh, (laughs) which, yeah. So there wasn't one single cause, but there were a lot of things that sort of congealed to create, or not congealed, that's a gross word. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of things that kind of came together to... Coalesce. There you go. Yeah, there's so there's a lot of things that all sort of coalesced into a rising sentiment that uh, marijuana was probably okay, uh, and that a lot of their the, the things their parents and that other people have been saying weren't correct. Uh, so just imagine you're a college student in the 1960s and you've been told, you know, marijuana leads to insanity. You know, it's going to cause violent behavior. It's really dangerous. It's bad for your health. All this you stuff, and then you decide fuck it. I'm a teenager. I'm immortal. I can try stuff. Uh, Because, you know, we've all been there. (laughs) Uh, And then you try it and you realize, oh, this is making me sleepy and introspective. Maybe there was a lot of panic for nothing. Maybe the adults in my life were wrong. Yeah. So uh, sort of uh, at the same time as that was happening, there was the rise of the beat movement. There was anger at the government because of the Vietnam War. And there was kind of a wish to rebel against traditional values and an older, and an older generation. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my words. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of it was kind of rebellion of college students. And they started to realize anti-cannabis laws were flawed. They could clearly see that others around them were using marijuana. It wasn't ca- causing them any harm. And because of that, a lot of cannabis use went unpunished. Uh, and the reason for this seems to be that it's like a tough sell to go after college students en masse when it's much easier to go after the people who society sees as quote unquote criminals. So mm-hmm. a lot of the people who were still getting punished were people of color, poor people, you know, basically the people who aren't college students, but then these college students get to smoke weed and kind of get a slap on the wrist because we don't want to send all of these people with bright futures, you know, to 
to jail. We don't want to give them legal punishments. And a lot of these people, let's remember, were probably young white men. So, mm, right. Uh, so by the 1960s, even Harry fucking Anslinger, and I wrote that down in my notes that way, <laughs> Harry fucking Anslinger <laughs> conceded that criminal, criminal penalties then enforced for youthful marijuana use were probably too severe. Basically, I think it kind of goes along with that whole idea of not wanting to lock up white college students that he'd rather lock up people of color instead. So he's like, Oh yeah, like this is too severe for this person, but this jazz musician. Yeah. They should probably go to jail forever. No, they're a criminal, obviously. Yeah. Obviously because jazz. (laughs) Very important. (laughs) Uh, in 1967, not only hippie activists, but the solidly mainstream voices of Life, Newsweek, and Look magazines question why the plant was illegal at all. So marijuana was increasingly popular and like demands for decriminalization and legalization were gaining steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but me- And meanwhile, the number of state-level marijuana... <laughs> sorry, me- but, but meanwhile... The number of state-level marijuana arrests increased tenfold between 1965 and 1970. So a lot of people were thinking, this thing's probably okay. We should probably legalize it. And meanwhile, administrations uh, were still saying, no, we need to penalize people for this. But basically what we've got going on is a huge disconnect between the people and the government, particularly the federal government. Uh, And what happened after that was the creation of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, which is more commonly referred to as the Controlled Substances Act. This was signed into law in 1970 by President Richard Nixon, because obviously. I'm so shocked. (laughs) Yeah. So just to refresh everyone's memory, I know we went over this in a earlier episodes that I did about uh, cannabis, but I'm going to go over it again, just so everyone knows. Um, So what the scheduling is, is classifications. Um, So there's schedule one, schedule two, schedule three, schedule four, schedule five. Um, I just learned about this in my substance use class. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I, I understand why this sort of structure was created because some drugs are more dangerous than others inherently. Uh, But they have misclassified some of these in ways that are pretty fucked up. So schedule one, which is supposed to be the worst of the worst. um, What this says is schedule one drugs, substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Marijuana does not have either of those things. There have been many, many studies. Um, And before anyone wants to come back at me with studies that allegedly show that there is a high abuse potential and there's no medical use, et cetera, just know I am going to poke holes in that so fast. Because if you look at the methodology in any study that that appears to show that, there's always problems with the methodology. So please look at what actually happened in the study before you send it to me. Just saying. Yes. Yes. So schedule one drugs or some example of schedule one drugs are heroin, uh, Mm -hmm. LSD, which I'm not sure LSD should be in there. Uh, Cannabis definitely shouldn't be in there. Um, Ecstasy and peyote. Um, I, I have issues with a couple of those being in there. Peyote to me particularly seems like it's 
probably based on some racism or some mm. uh, xenophobia because it's used culturally by like groups that aren't white. So just saying that. So so th that's schedule one, allegedly. <laughs> so yeah, that's schedule one. Allegedly, those are like the most dangerous. Uh, schedule two, drugs and substances and chemicals are defined as drugs with high potential for abuse with use potentially leading to severe psychological or physical dependence. These drugs are also considered dangerous. Some examples are Vicodin, cocaine, methamphetamine, methadone, uh, Dilaudid, Demerol, Oxycontin, Fentanyl, Adderall, and Ritalin. So some what? of these, I agree with that. Some of them I don't. I think I, I actually think that uh, hydrocodone or, or Vicodin, that should probably be further up. I think that should be Schedule 1 because of oh, the yeah. opioid crisis. But it's not. Allegedly, it's not as dangerous as marijuana, which is insane. Uh. But that's what the law says. And Schedule 3. Uh, schedule 3 drugs and substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with a moderate to low potential for physical and psychological dependence. Schedule three drug abuse potential is less than schedule one and schedule two, but more than schedule four. I mean, obviously I don't know why they had to put that wording in there. Uh, so examples. Yeah. real quick, real quick on the wording. So we're trying to change it from calling it drug abuse to just drug use. So substance use and cause abuse is a, it's a moralizing word. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. And it's also, it doesn't look the same from person to person. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not as easy to diagnose as we pretend it is. Yeah. If that so makes just sense. say use when you can instead of abuse from social work school. That's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the wording that they have here for that. But, but yes. So, so I, we know I'm they're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, so some examples of Schedule 3 drugs are codeine, ketamine, anabolic steroids, and testosterone. Then Schedule 4 drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with a low potential for abuse and a low risk of dependence. Some examples of them are Xanax, Soma, Darvon, Darvacet, Valium, Ativan, and Ambien. I would argue that some of those have a much higher risk of abuse like i feel like xanax and valium probably have more risk of abuse than yeah say testosterone which is yeah. a higher scheduled drug but uh and then down to schedule five which is the least uh harmful in general uh schedule five drug substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with lower potential for abuse than schedule four and consist of preparations containing limited quantities of certain narcotics. Uh, so it's not just a pure drug, but it's something with something in it. Um, and examples of that are cough medicines with less than 200 milligrams of codeine per 100 milliliters, like Robitussin AC, uh, Lomatil, Modafin, Lyrica, and there's something else I can't pronounce. So <laughs> basically this runs the gamut, but I don't think that cannabis should be I don't I, uh, like, okay, I, I don't really think it should be scheduled to begin with, mm -hmm. but I think that's going to be a tough sell for the federal government. Uh, yeah. I think that it should be probably number four or five. Yeah. But yes, but that's, that that's my experience in this experience of a lot of other people and feel free to disagree with me, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Go ahead. It's about controlling people, not uh, yeah. not what the drug is doing. Yeah, it is. And and I I really wonder if some of these drugs that seem like they should be higher on the list that are lower, like, I think it would be very interesting to look into how those companies are connected to the government and government officials, because there is definitely, there's some big pharma in there that affects lawmaking in a way that it should not. Yeah. So, so that was the 1970 Controlled Substances Act. Uh, the, the Drug Enforcement Administration, otherwise known as the DEA, was established in 1973 by combining the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs and Customs Drug Agents. Despite this, 11 states decriminalized possession of marijuana up to one ounce. Uh, but this leniency apparently led to kids having easy access to it, which I don't have numbers on that, but I, I guess I can see that. But again, this is decriminalization, not legalization. So it's it's like it's less risky, mm-hmm. but it's still illegal, which means there's still a black market. And when there's a black market for stuff, it's going to be easier for kids to get it. And right. I'll talk more about that later. And then sort of in the 70s, there became an increased market for marijuana paraphernalia. So like, you know, pipes and things and like different, different things that were supporting it. And the thing about the paraphernalia is that's available to anyone because like something like a glass pipe, you can buy that legally. Like yes. you can buy a, a, you can buy a pipe to smoke weed with, you know, a, a glass pipe online on Etsy right now. Right. Okay. And like in the 1970s, you could go buy a glass pipe for smoking go wherever you any, can buy that. Go to any boardwalk and you will find a bunch of shops that have a bunch of tie-dye and Grateful Dead stuff. You can get all the paraphernalia yeah. you want. Yeah. So this, this paraphernalia was, this paraphernalia was a big problem and it kind of, it kind of sucks because the people who were pushing for marijuana to be decriminalized and legalized, they also kind of brought in the market for paraphernalia and because kids could get the paraphernalia as well, even if they weren't actually using cannabis, that made a lot of parents really nervous Mm -hmm. and parents are great to stir up a moral panic. Uh, This has happened (laughs) with, this has happened with like rock music and rap music. Uh, It's it's, basically if you can, if you can get parents upset about stuff, then they can pull together and have a lot of power. I think that being upset about paraphernalia is kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of silly because I know so many people who had drug paraphernalia long before they ever used any drugs. Like it, (laughs) it is a way to rebel that's, that has almost no risk because, you know, you just have the thing. You're kind of putting up a front. You're not necessarily using the thing as well. So paraphernalia right. doesn't equal drug use. And I wish people would understand that. Anyway. Drug use doesn't uh, make you a bad person also. Yeah. It does not make you a bad person. Even if you are someone who is using a harder drug. Even if you are someone who is, you know, developing a problem with that or has a problem with that, it doesn't make you a bad person. There are drugs that are just addictive and they're going to be for everyone. So we shouldn't yeah. moralize around them because it actually stops people from getting clean. Yes, it's it's yeah. not 
your fault if you like you end up homeless because of a drug problem it's like that's not it, it would be nice if that was the whole complete story in one sentence but we all know that's not the case people don't wake up and choose to be homeless oh yeah the absolutely and the myth is a lie it doesn't exist <laughs> Uh, and the the um, the whole characterization of drugs as something to be dealt with by law enforcement is a problem, in my opinion, because it does not focus on rehabilitation at all. Uh, I mean, sure, if someone gets into a prison, then they would have access to some sort of rehabilitation. But if they're just being given fines, if they're, you know, in jail for a little bit, if like all these things, it basically, if they don't get arrested and put into an actual prison, anything that law enforcement is doing to them is just hurting them. It's not actually helping. Seattle and some other places um, up in the PNW have started to send out social workers with law enforcement. Whenever somebody yeah. like gets called in for like a drug call, they send a person who's trained to deal with vulnerable populations in nonviolent manners and in a way that focuses on rehabil rehabilitation and healing instead of punishment for something they might have, might not have had control over. We could do a whole episode My about yeah. that, but yeah, I, I think we should do, I think probably the next episode about cannabis that I want to do is going to be about harm reduction models as opposed to law enforcement models. Yes. So we can talk about that. I, yes. I think that my, my dad would have loved to be one of those people who like went out on the call with the police and would have been like, no, I can deal, deal with this. This is, <laughs> this Man, is a drug sign, issue. This isn't a law enforcement issue. Sign me the fuck up. I will. Yeah. I will have a cop partner that I will tell about nonviolent confrontation and being nice to people. Yeah. Talk to your And that's a whole other episode about cops anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so let's go back to the seventies. Uh, and the parents who were getting really upset. <laughs> uh, so I, I do want to have a little bit of empathy for these parents here, which I know is kind of weird for what this episode is about. But I, I would like to point out these parents were raised on really intense lies and fear mongering. Uh, so people like Harry Anslinger were telling them, marijuana leads to insanity marijuana will make you yeah. kill your brother like all Isn't this kind of thing, stuff like is this part of the posters where it's like if you send your girls to college they'll come back practicing lesbianism and witchery <laughs> like that's the oh era <laughs> probably yeah i mean th this is the era of i mean like this was kind of like the civil rights era maybe it was the tail end of mm -hmm. it but I, this was really a time when when a lot of things were being questioned and a lot of really good change did happen, um, but unfortunately it didn't really in the drug arena. All right. Anyway, so my main point with that talk with the parents is if you're raised to think something is really, really dangerous, it's going to be really scary if you find out that your kids or your friends are using it. And if you get that scared, you might do things that are irrational, you know, like pretending that marijuana is the root of all evil without actually doing any research about it. <laughs> so here I want to talk a little bit about legal markets um, and as opposed to black markets. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but but just to just to like talk about the issue with marijuana use among teenagers and younger kids, uh, 
I, I want to talk about what I think about it and why and how I think that the legal market would be better than what we have now in order to keep kids from using it, <laughs> which it's kind of like a weird kind of kind of a weird ride anyway. Uh, because of the way that your brain develops, I do think that it's not necessarily the best call for teenagers to be using marijuana much. Yes. Um, like definitely not all the time. And a big part of this is because schizophrenia doesn't tend to show up until later on. And schizophrenia is one of those things that marijuana can actually be really bad for. And that is one of my major reasons for it is that there might be mental illness situations that don't show up until you're a young adult in your twenties or so. And if you have marijuana use starting in as you're 14 or 15, that might affect the way that your brain develops um, in the long term. Um, I'm not an expert on that. But, sorry. I We just nope. learned about uh, brain development and neurobiology with Ooh. using drugs. So um, I'm just looking through my notes right now. So when you think about your brain development, your brain develops from back to front. So it comes in, it's coming in from like your brain stem to your prefrontal cortex, which is right here at your forehead. So there's a thing called the nucleus accumbens, which is part of your reward center. So in adolescence, it develops before the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex helps us control impulses and the it helps with delayed gratification and emotional regulation. That's one of the last things that develops. So we're designed from an evolutionary standpoint to take risks, which is why teenagers are off doing. It looks like risky behavior because their brain mm -hmm. isn't there yet. It's not there with them. So it's big on rewards, but not so capable of like hitting the brakes and be like, maybe we shouldn't do this because it wants you to take risks and it doesn't really have that regulation all the way developed yet. So you know, and then your brain gets all these rewards for doing risky behavior sometimes. So then it keeps seeking that dopamine rush again. Um, so whenever we do stuff like drugs, which releases way more dopamine than we're used to getting, our brain is like, that felt great. Let's do it more. <laughs> <laughs> That's why that happens. Um, so it can affect your memory, attention, your speed of processing information, future planning, abstract reasoning, and problem solving. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, drugs or like crime, like yeah, moral issues. Um, so I just want to put that out there because we just talked about this in my one class. Um, regular yeah. marijuana use during adolescence found to increase risk two to five times more likely of developing schizophrenia, psychosis, anxiety, and depression in adulthood. So there is that if you're using as an adolescent. However, if you wait until, you know, your brain is mostly developed, you'll probably not have those yeah. issues so much. And that's it. And that's the thing that this, so this is part of the issue that I think people like prohibitionists, what don't realize is that people like me um, who are pushing for cannabis legalization are not pushing for everyone to be able to use it at all times. Like that is, that is not mm -hmm. the point. Um, and that is not the majority of cannabis activists, I would say. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people who are, are pushing cannabis legalization are 
really advocating for the right to adult use of cannabis in a responsible way. Um, I actually heard Rick Steves talk about this on my college campus when I, oh, by the way, Rick Steves is like a guy who does like travel shows and travel podcasts and stuff. I grew up watching him when I was a kid. Like we would, before we went on a trip, we would watch the Rick Steves <laughs> episode of like whenever he went there so we could right, learn yeah, more yeah. about it. Um, it was really fun. And I would watch that with my dad. Uh, and Aww. then when I was in college, I was like, oh, if Rick Steves is talking, of course I'm going to go, what's it about? <laughs> oh, it's about weed. <laughs> but <laughs> but he, he put it really well when he said, like, I, I am an adult. I can, I can use this substance responsibly. I would like to be able to, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here because it was a long time ago, but I would like mm -hmm. to be able to use marijuana like on my property legally without having the risk. I'd like to be able to buy it legally without the risk. Yeah. And, and really that lines up with what a lot of uh, cannabis activists want is we just want to be able to use it as adults responsibly, uh, very often medically. Yeah. That's what we want. We don't want kids to be using it. And furthermore, so this is here where I'm going to bring up the legal versus illegal markets. In a legal market, it's not going to be as easy for kids to get a hold of this stuff. Right. Because there are age restrictions. And I know that, that there's there's a lot of people out there who think that legalizing will lead to kids getting it. But that doesn't really make sense. Because if you're uh, a weed dealer in an illegal market, I think you're going to be a little bit less concerned about someone being over the age of 21 or whatever it is, you know, yeah. like you're concerned about getting your money. And I know that there are a lot of dealers who won't deal to like quote unquote kids, whatever that is, or people below a certain age, but that's not necessarily across the board. Um, right. I would argue that in an illegal market, it's a lot easier for teenagers to get a hold of cannabis than it would be in a legal market. Um, and a lot uh, of the legal markets for cannabis use the same age as alcohol, 21. So that will mitigate some of those things where you have the risks of all these bad things happening with teenagers where their brains are still developing. So Strict parents make sneaky kids. And the same yeah. can be said of your government. <laughs> a strict yeah. government doesn't mean you're not going to use it. You're just going to find a different way to get it. That could be said of alcohol, weed, abortions, gay marriage. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you look at alcohol prohibition, people didn't stop drinking because it was prohibited. They, they just more. found, yeah, they drank more and they found sneakier ways. And like, yeah. if you make something so, I don't know, like, it, like if you make something taboo that didn't used to be, people are going to want it more. Yeah. And when they have access to it, to it, I would say you're more likely to overindulge. I think that's just human nature. As soon as you tell a teenager you're not allowed to do that, they're like, well, now I want to try. I want to see why it's being blocked from me. Like, if yeah. you're like, this is weed, it's my medicine, kids are going to be like, okay. <laughs> like, it's not going to be yeah. the same effect as, oh, no, that's the devil's lettuce. You can't have it. Like, Yeah, and, and that's my plan to talk about with my kids will be... You know, this this is something I use for these reasons. And, you know, this is something that I don't want you to use until you're closer to adulthood because of these reasons, you know. And if you're willing to have that conversation, it's going to be a lot more clear why the rule is there. And if I, I feel like, yeah, people, people really underestimate teenagers 
Yeah. And they, they underestimate teenagers and how much they can understand. And I really think that yeah. a teenager can understand if you have an adult conversation with them about why you have a certain rule as a parent. And the more rules you have, the less credible you're going to be because you're just trying to yeah. control. And Their that's brains what the government's trying to do. are completely unchecked. Like they have all of the motivation and all of this like brain power to understand it. And none of the emotional regulation or like, you know, delayed gratification to be like, mm, maybe I should hold off on this. They don't have that. So they're going to go find out for themselves. So you yeah. need to be like, this is what this is. I would rather you not do it right now. It's not dangerous, like the government's saying, but no, it is a drug. Like, yeah, and if you use fear mongering to keep them away from something, and then they see their friend using it, and it's fine, they're gonna think, "Oh, well, my parents just lied to me." Then, and then they're not gonna trust anything you have to say about about the subject. So, why not just be? transparent about what your rules are what they're based on and all that kind of stuff it's just silly yeah just so, don't lie to speaking your of silly parents <laughs> yeah don't lie to your kids <laughs> especially not if those lies are based on racism more lies <laughs> they are yeah so speaking of parents who are lying and doing bad things well okay so these, these parents okay they had been lied to they a lot mm. of them probably believed all this stuff anyway um so The Silver Spring-based National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth, which is now called the National Family Partnership, Mm -hmm. uh, aligned with the then First Lady Nancy Reagan. Um, So this Mm -hmm. is past Nixon era. Now we're getting into the Reagan era. Uh, They aligned with Reagan in a Just Say No campaign uh, that organized marches and brought rallies and conferences to Washington, pushing to overturn lenient drug laws. The organization's president attended events with Reagan and wrote articles decrying adolescent marijuana use. Which, okay, hard drugs, I I totally get a lot of the fear around that, but the fear around marijuana here was pretty baseless. The uh, Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 and the subsequent Anti-Drug Use Act of 1988 did funnel some money into treatment, but mostly it just made the punishments for drug convictions harsher. Uh, and it established a uh, higher mandatory minimum prison sentences. So mandatory minimums for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's what it sounds like where if you are convicted of a crime, rather than the judge being able to say there were mitigating circumstances and I'm going to give you a lesser punishment because of the circumstances surrounding the crime you committed, like the, the judge in this case can't do that because they have to give you a minimum. So that's mandatory minimums, and they're pretty fucked up a lot of the time. Yeah. Anyway, so this was kind of like, this was the beginning of the war on drugs, really. And just spoiler alert, the war on drugs was a colossal failure. Uh, We can do an episode at some point about the war on drugs and all drugs that it was targeting. But I am going to specifically talk about marijuana because that's what this series is about. For decades, people continued to believe the debunked gateway drug theory and illogically perpetuated the idea that marijuana is dangerous despite having no real evidence. And I want to keep saying that there never really has been decent evidence that has good methodology behind it to show that marijuana is harmful in the way that the federal government says it is. Mm -hmm. So 
The DEA used the federally illegal status of cannabis to justify raids on medical dispensaries and farms. So a lot of these were providing cannabis to people who were medically in need of it for some reason. Uh, and they would carry out these raids even when those places were functioning within the limits of state law. So basically what the federal illegalization means is even if you are in a state where it's legal, such as Washington, Colorado, California, Oregon, like a bunch of that stuff, the DEA can still come in and fuck up your cannabis farm if they decide to, because it's federally illegal, mm. which it's really messed up because, because why do you need to have that power? There's no reason. And if, and if, if anyone listening to this is a conservative Republican, anyone who leans that way, this is very much a states' rights issue because allowing states to make their own laws sounds all good and well, but when it remains federally illegal and the DEA can still raid people who are abiding by the laws of their state, mm -hmm. then they are not respecting state rights at all. So nah. just put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> that was very apt for this. That was. That was a good one. Yeah, it's funny because I almost didn't say that. I was like, "Oh, that's such a silly <laughs> thing put to say," but it actually sounded really good. And smoke it on your own property. <laughs> yeah, put that in your legal pipe and smoke it on your own property in Canada because uh, <laughs> it's not federally legal here. Uh, so, uh, so I want to make uh, I want to make something quite clear here mm -hmm. uh, as we move on and talk about some more recent administrations and how they have dealt with the war on drugs. Historically, it really hasn't mattered whether a president and his administration are Republican or Democrat. Uh, no matter what they've said, when it comes right down to it, no president we've ever had has actually done a huge amount for drug policy reform. Um, at, at least as regards cannabis, I will say. Even those who have more lenient views on cannabis haven't really borne this out with their actions. Um, so rather than go through every single uh, presidency for the last 40 years or whatever, I'm going to kind of focus on after 2000 because it's a more recent memory and a lot of us have more of an understanding. Just looking at our demographics, I think that people are going to, <laughs> uh, yeah, people are going to maybe remember more about like the Bush and Obama presidencies than they would about, say, Reagan. So, uh, so now we're going to go to George W. Bush. Um, he's, it's not great for a lot of reasons, but anyway. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Real quick. Can I tell you about the yeah, George Senior sure. story that I have from Tumblr? Oh yeah, absolutely, because you had something about that. I did. I so okay, sweating. so this is from user Baytology apt. Um, in 1989, George Bush gave a speech about crack. During the speech, he pulled out a bag of crack and said, "This bag was seized right across the street from the White House in Lafayette Park." Turns out his speech writers had the idea to pull out a prop during his speech. And in order to make it believable, they had the DEA plant crack on this random 18-year-old black kid. They lured him there. He didn't even know where the White House or Lafayette Park was. When he got there, they arrested him. The plot was discovered by a journalist named Gary Webb. Trigger warning for suicide. Uh, Gary Webb then killed himself after he revealed that the CIA let crack infiltrate black communities through drug cartels making deals with the CIA. His wife left him and his career was ruined for expo exposing the drug war as a war against people of color. There's a really well done movie called Kill the Messenger I suggest everyone should watch. It was done in partnership with his oh, yeah, family and details the events from beginning to end. 
Um, the 18-year-old black kid who was framed by the United States government for a crime he didn't commit was Keith Jackson. He has a wife and family now and lives in the Baltimore, D.C. area. Unsurprisingly, he doesn't want anything to do with what happened to him. The charges against him for the Lafayette case were dropped, but he received a 121-month sentence for distributing drugs near a school. Keith Jackson was a senior in high school when he was arrested. He was released from prison in 1998, 10 years later. We have to remember all of the time that was taken from him. We have to remember that he wasn't just some random 18-year-old black kid. The government chose him to become a caricature of who they wanted the enemy to be in the war on drugs because he is black. So I learned about that yesterday. Um, Can you send me that article so I can post it on uh, the website? It's just a Tumblr screenshot, but I am always... It is on the internet, but I am always shocked by what i learn on tumblr (laughs) based on you know school like why didn't i know about that why didn't anybody know about that yeah it's terrible yeah it's warring people it's warring people of color it's yeah it's really fucked up and also like for a prop for a speech to ruin someone's life in that way one speech for for what for how many people like who saw that yeah why was it that important yeah, and 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 that's so like like why the fuck would you need that as a prop? Also, like there's no reason that you need it except to fearmonger more. I guess. I mean, yeah, it makes it a little more impactful, but like you don't need that. And oh god, that's so fucked up. So yeah, so that was George Bush Senior. Um, just we're gonna uh, sort of jump over Clinton here because I. Like I said, I wanted to focus more on the the more recent uh, presidents we've had, but Clinton was also not good for the well. <laughs> the war on drugs was not good anyway. The Clinton administration did not help that, and they're pretty bad actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that, um, and I'll post more information about that. But there's just so much that it's hard to get it all into one episode, yeah. and I don't want to drag this history out for. A long, long time. Right. Uh, so now we'll move to George W. Bush. Uh, this is from thirdway.org. That's from an article there. President George W. Bush used every lever at his disposal to enforce the federal ban on marijuana. In fact, during his time in office, his Justice Department argued and won two Supreme Court cases strengthening federal authority to prohibit marijuana use specifically marijuana use. In 2001, the Supreme Court upheld the broad application of the Controlled Substances Act in U.S. versus Oakland, Cannabis Buyers Co-op, which, by the way, that was a medical, a lot of people there were getting medical cannabis. Um, So they rule, oh no, everyone there was getting medical cannabis. Uh, (laughs) They ruled that medical need does not create an exception to federal marijuana prohibition. So this is that thing that says, even though you have medical need, even though you are abiding by your state's laws, it's still totally fine for the DEA to come in and fuck you up. And by fuck you up, I mean like, like steal the plants. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck your life up. Uh, Take away your medicine. uh, Take away access to a lot of people's medicine, many of whom can't get it in other ways. Uh, It would also mean that if you were someone who was growing that and making even like a modest income, your income is gone. Yeah. It's, it's fucked up. Um, And in 2005, Gonzalez versus Raich, a few years later, the, the, Uh, The court affirmed that the federal government's prohibition to enforce that prohibition, even in states that had legalized medical marijuana. 
So basically they're like, nope, nope, it's still totally fine to go after people who need marijuana for a medical purpose. So what this law means to me as someone with a medical marijuana card in a state where medical cannabis is legal, it means that I could get in trouble with the federal government. I mean, they're not going to go after me per se, but they might go after, for example, Calypso, which is a farm in Erie that that produces medical cannabis. Like they could go after that for no reason, even though they are actually abiding by all of the laws of the state. So when I'm, when I get all hot bad about this stuff, it's because it applies to me. So yep, there's that. All right. So Despite 13 states legalizing medical marijuana by the time Bush left office, their laws could not provide a safe harbor from federal raids or prosecution. Uh, No one was safe and everyone knew it. From 2001 to 2003, the government raided over 100 state legal medical marijuana growers and dispensaries. Okay, these were people who were abiding by the laws of their state. They wanted to produce medical marijuana to help people and they were penalized for it. In 2006 alone, DEA agents arrested 594 people on marijuana charges in California, which had voted to legalize medical marijuana a decade earlier. Business owners in full compliance with state laws had their assets seized, and even if they were acquitted of all charges, any marijuana-related property confiscated by law enforcement was not returned. Mm -hmm. So even if you were found to be not guilty you don't get any compensation for the fact that they just ruined your livelihood. So, you know what sucks again, states rates people, this is not okay. <laughs> what sucks? I mean, there's a lot of things to choose from. I mean, uh, it's so many, but <laughs> like, this country is so big geographically that there's probably so much that we don't know about because it was, it never reached us or yeah. like it never got filtered through whatever we were getting taught by. Like, why are we just, why do I just know about this now? Why is there so much stuff that we have to learn about through TikTok, through social media? Because we're finally connected to other people around the country to be like, hey, this is happening. More people should care about this. Like, how have we survived this long? (laughs) Yeah, it's the whole (sighs) getting to adulthood and realizing how much you don't know or realizing how much of what you know is actually false is really disheartening. Yeah. Oh, there was okay. So, uh, as, as I've said before, my my dad was like deeply involved in Narcotics Anonymous. Um, he like he was addicted to hard drugs and got clean and sober and sponsored a lot of people, all that stuff. Um, but he, uh, there was one of the conventions he went to. He got this T-shirt. And it said on the back, "Everything we know is subject to change, especially what we know about the truth." And I think that's a really great statement (laughs) because yeah, it is like, we all know so many quote unquote truths that are based on lies. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. So, okay. We're going to stop talking about George Bush. Now we're going to move on to Barack Obama, which should be a breath of fresh air, but it's not Uh, because like I said before, doesn't matter if they're Democrats or Republicans. And, Obama is like fairly moderate as it turns out. He's a lot less yeah. Democrat, like straight up, than I think uh, I assumed as a 16 year old in 2008. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's I remember looking like way back like back before Obama was even the Democratic candidate when there was still a bunch of candidates um in the the first race that he ran in I I remember like looking at all of them and being like okay I want to find if any of these Democratic candidates are actually in support of gay marriage. Because, like, I think I was, like, 17 at the time or something, but I was like, I really fucking want gay marriage to just happen because this is bullshit. Like, that that was a major thing that I was thinking about. And I looked through, and there was literally one candidate out of, like, maybe 10 of them who actually, with no holds barred, supported gay marriage. And that was General Wesley Clark. (laughs) And nobody really knows much about him anymore. Yeah, exactly. I, I looked him up recently and I was like, yeah, that's right. This this guy, but I remembered his name because I was like, wow, this is the only person who's actually standing up for a thing I really believe in, but he's probably not going to get the nomination. So anyway, but <laughs> but yeah, so looking back like like Obama, I think was really great for the country in a lot of ways, but oh, yeah. I think that his policies and all of that, they were more of a stepping stone than like a solution. Um, I think that, like, I think really for the best of the country, we need someone in office who has more socialist ideals, but it's going to be really hard to make that happen with how divisive the country is now. All right. So President Obama's election in 2008 uh, brought with it an optimism that a new federal policy would emerge uh, that would drastically reduce marijuana enforcement. Uh, when he stated shortly after being elected that the federal government would not target actors in the marijuana industry, and by actors, it's just people in the marijuana industry, um, who were abiding by state laws, the industry took it as a sign that they were free to expand. But as the industry grew rapidly, the administration changed course and began to target large-scale growers and dispensaries in states with lax laws that they believed insufficiently regulated the legal market. So again, this is a whole thing where... (laughs) If you're a Republican, you should want to legalize because this fucks up states' rights. <laughs> and yeah. I just I keep wanting to hammer that home because it's really an issue that everybody can get together on for various different reasons. So at least in the early years of his presidency, enforcement actually increased under Obama. Uh, During his first term, 153 federal criminal cases were brought against people involved with medical marijuana industry, which is nearly as many as were brought during the entire Bush presidency. One more time. Say that one more time. Say that one more time. During his first term, 153 federal criminal cases were brought against people involved with the medical marijuana industry. So this this is medical nearly as many as were brought during the entire Bush presidency. <laughs> Just like when I got somewhere where I was like, I was doing research and I was like, well, surely Obama's better than Bush on this. It just Turns hurt. out, no. It just hurts because I love I, I'm Obama not, so much. I'm not blaming Obama specifically for this because obviously like a president can only do so much. And in our right. country, be, because of checks and balances, like, because of checks and balances, a candidate who's making, like like all candidates we have, make broad claims about things that they are going to make happen. But I think mm-hmm. it does sway Congress when the voters vote someone in who says, like, I want to make all these things happen. I mean, take that as you will, but 
presidents are in some ways very effective and in some ways a figurehead. So it's not necessarily Obama's yeah. fault that all of this happened, but he didn't really do anything to stop it. And he probably right. could have done some stuff to stop it. They did shift priorities, but it's for me, it's a little bit like too little too late. But anyway, so by 2012, the national context shifted significantly. Um, that was the year that Colorado and Washington became the very first states in the country to legalize the recreational use of marijuana by popular vote. Woo woo, oh Washington! <laughs> I was in, I was a sophomore in college when that happened. When I tell you, everybody was like, I need to go to Colorado right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> we were so excited. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That other uh, seven states have legalized medical marijuana since uh, Obama's inauguration. Given that uh, new landscape, their administration shifted priorities. Uh, they said they would no longer enforce the federal prohibition on marijuana in states where it was legal, uh, so long as everyone was abiding by the rules, uh, such as keeping marijuana away from kids, preventing its dispersed um, diversion across state lines, and keeping the profits out of the hands of gangs and criminals. So they're like, okay, if you're following the rules, then I guess it's okay. But again, this is 2013. Like they had kind of a while. They could have done that earlier. They could have saved a lot of people from losing their livelihood. Mm -hmm. They could have saved innocent people from being targeted. So I'm not happy with the Obama administration uh, <laughs> in that regard. I'm also not happy about the uh, sorry about the Affordable Care Act because I don't think that it actually had the effect it was supposed to, but we can do a whole episode about that. Anyway, moving on to Donald Trump. Do we have oh. to? Okay, so I just so it's this been is so nice to not see his stupid ass face every day. Like I haven't. Had well, to well think we're not going to talk about him. We're not going to talk about him that long. Because, uh, okay, so all the research that I've done about Trump on this specific subject has shown, like, a weird flip-flopping back and forth. And to me, it looks like he doesn't really have an opinion one way or the other. Like, maybe he doesn't like it personally, but doesn't really care. Honestly, right. like, that's kind of what I've seen. Um, I do have, I do have some uh, excerpts from an article on MarijuanaMoment.net that I'm going to share. Uh, so it says, while Trump has not pursued a full scale, and this was while he was still president, um, while Trump has not pursued a full scale crackdown of state legal cannabis programs and has voiced tentative support for modest reform uh, legislation, his administration has made a number of hostile anti-marijuana actions from rescinding Obama era guidance on cannabis prosecutions to implementing policies to make immigrants ineligible for citizenship if they consume marijuana or work in the cannabis industry. But to me... <sighs> Like, a lot of that just looks like racism. Like, especially the thing about immigrants there. Um, and what uh, the rescinding Obama-era guidance means is, like, when they said, okay, we won't prosecute you if you're following the rules. Basically, it got rescinded three years later when Trump came into the right. office. So, yeah. So, like, they... <sighs> They made some weird anti-marijuana moves uh, while also not really pushing forward any legislation on it like so they, they basically left it open to go after people who were growing marijuana but didn't really go after that many people mm -hmm. uh, so although sometimes he has stated that he believes in states rights to regulate cannabis on their own he also urged republicans not to place marijuana legalization initiatives on state ballots out of concern that it could increase democratic turnout in elections <laughs> so 
it's not related to marijuana at all. Oh, it's related to the that fact guy. that he's like, yeah. But the thing is, he's right in that regard. Okay. Like if people know that there is a, a measure on the ballot that could result in marijuana legalization, a lot more progressives and Democrats and people who are not going to vote for him will turn out. And while they're there, they might as well vote against him. So it's really not flawed logic, unfortunately. Like it's, it actually is a smart decision. So anyway, so that's there. That's, that's Trump. Basically to me, it seems like he doesn't really give a fuck personally, unless it affects his political career. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. totally lines up with who he is. You know, if if it was something that was popular with Republicans, um, legalization that is, then I think he oh would God. support it. Uh, so now we'll move on to the Biden-Harris administration. I have more to say about them because uh, it's not good. <laughs> Ugh. Um, they were actually in the news earlier this year. Uh, well, they've been in the news a lot, but um, <laughs> as regards cannabis, they've been in the news because people were either suspended, asked to work from home, or I believe five people were let go for prior cannabis use. Um, they weren't really clear on exactly what the consequences for people were, but I think anyone getting fired for prior cannabis use, like not even while they're working in the administration, is messed up. And it's not necessary and it's not going to affect their job performance if they smoked weed six months ago, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, but that, that's that's what I have to say about that because I don't know all of the details on it, but it's messed up and they have fired people for prior marijuana use, despite the fact that Kamala Harris is allegedly pro-legalization, but we'll talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, neither Biden nor Harris have very good records when it comes to law enforcement and drugs. As a prosecutor, Harris went after a lot of low-level drug offenders, though many of them were not ultimately incarcerated. I would point out that it's pretty easy to go after low-level people. It's pretty easy to win those cases. Um, And if you're just trying to win cases, then Hmm. I guess it makes sense. (laughs) Anyway, um, uh, when she read for Attorney General of California, she didn't have much time to talk about any cannabis legalization. Uh, when she was asked by a reporter what she thought of her opponent, Ron Gold's positive stance on legalization of cannabis, he, she said, he's entitled to his opinion and then laughed, which is like, okay, you could actually have a stance on it. Like, he, or That's not a just real non-answer. It. Yeah, it's just anything. like, yeah, it, it's just kind of like... You could say something or you could say no comment, but like that's kind of just a dumb little like I don't want to talk about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, her tune has changed a lot since then. And it seems OK, this is going to seem pessimistic to a lot of people. Sure. But it seems like she's a, like a little bit um, Trumpy when it comes to this and that she's changed her stance based on what's happening in her political career and what could happen as a result oh. of what she says. And I'll expand on why that is. So, in 2017, and let's remember, 2017 was the year after Trump got elected. So it was a time when the people on the the Democratic Party who were considering running for president were more progressive. Bernie Sanders had been really, really popular and, in my opinion, might have been the nominee if it hadn't been for the fucking DNC. 
so I think she looked at that and was like, ooh, I should change my stance on it because turns out progressivism is more popular these days and it's going to get me farther. So in 2017, she co-sponsored the Safe Banking Act, which allows banks to... Oh, and by the way, I'm not saying that any of the stuff that she did was bad, but I think the timing is very interesting um, to be someone who has had no opinion or a negative opinion on cannabis for so long. And then just in the past four years, it's changed. Like, that's kind of weird. Like, once you set your sights on the presidency, suddenly things shifted. Like, that's, it's weird to me. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really indicate that your views are based in fact like it indicates to me that your views are based on what's popular anyway yeah um so these are these are good things that she did but i don't think she did them for good reasons um so in 2017 uh she co-sponsored the safe banking act which allows banks to work with cannabis businesses without fear of punishment from the federal government that's a great move because a lot of People are blocked, specifically small business owners or potential small business owners are blocked from being able to be in legal cannabis just because of the fact that banks don't want to work with them. They can't get loans, all that kind of stuff. Then in 2018, Harris endorsed the Marijuana Justice Act, which would have removed cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, allowing states to legalize without federal interference, which and which would have even withheld funding from states which continue to criminalize cannabis. Um, Obviously, that hasn't actually happened. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, there was also a 2019 version of the, the bill that she sponsored. Uh, this was aimed at protecting past drug offenders from losing access to public housing. Uh, she also published a book in which she spoke out in favor of cannabis legalization. And I believe that was also in 2019. So before the election, mm-hmm. when she was maybe still in the primaries. Uh, recently, she co-wrote a letter urging U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to stop blocking efforts to research medical cannabis. Um, and now she is the lead sponsor of the MORE Act, which, if passed, could remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, allowing states to create their own marijuana-related policy. The MORE mm-hmm. Act would also facilitate expungements from minor federal cannabis charges create pathways for small businesses to join the cannabis industry and allow veterans to obtain cannabis recommendations through their VA doctors. Yes. Um, And help protect immigrants. It does. And help protect immigrants from being deported based on minor cannabis violations. Uh, So again, okay. All of that stuff is really great. And I really hope, well, I hope, I wish that she had continued on that track. Um, and I hope she gets back to it. I mean, cause like, anyway, um, so sorry, I, I'm just getting annoyed and I'm just like getting into my head about it. But anyway, her recent behavior seems to line up more with Biden's administration's views on cannabis, which are considerably more conservative than what she has stated in the past. Uh, so it seems like she's kind of walked back to be in line with the administration she is now in. And I really hope that that doesn't continue to be the case. Like if there's anything to split with the president on, this would be a really popular issue. And as a vice president, you, you don't always have to agree with the president, but it's, it's a tough position to be in. So I I don't know exactly how I feel about it other than I wish I had a stronger belief that she actually believes what she said about cannabis. Yeah. Um, 
she's doing a lot of really good things, but she also it's, seemed to have backtracked on some of them. So it, it thing, makes me worry she's going to backtrack even more. Sorry, go it's ahead. It's one thing with like Sanders or Warren or Biden even when they've been in the political game for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, and she also point. has for decades, not as many decades, but right. And, but but you can kind of tell the trajectory and where it changed yeah. based on like other stuff that was going on, mm-hmm. not necessarily like what was going on for her personally. Like I feel like it, their opinions were changing with the times, just like everybody yeah. else's incremental change, right? As opposed to you know really really big change in a very short period of time. Yeah, so it's I, one thing. Uh, we're not saying that like you shouldn't change your opinions if you're a politician. Yeah. Absolutely, you should constantly be checking yourself and reevaluating and you know stuff like that. But whenever it's happening as fast as it's happening with Harris, it's a different situation. I think. yeah, and and I think that like she's definitely been guilty of flip flopping on some issues, and I I'm worried that her. Her career ambitions, like, if, if it's not going to help her career ambitions to continue down this path and try to continue uh, with cannabis legalization and getting things moved forward, I'm worried she's just going to make the call that's better for her career rather than making the call that's better for the country. Yeah. And I, I understand how some people would say, well, of course you're going to choose your career, but I wish that the people who were in charge of the country would choose would make the choices that are better for the country. So I, yeah. So Kamala Harris, if you ever listen to this, which I know you won't just, (laughs) just stick with it because even if you did it for the wrong reasons, you did some things that were really, really good. And I want you to continue doing those things and kind of get back on track with that. Yeah. Anyway. So So, where does this bring us to now? So this brings us to Biden, because we still haven't talked about the actual current president, Uh, because I do want to talk about his stance, but I wanted to go over Kamala Harris first, because it's such a like a weird kind of issue. But what Joe Biden's current stance is, I basically boiled down to a couple bullet points. Uh, He supports people's right to medical use. He supports decriminalization, which that's not the same thing as legalization, let's remember. Um, And even with decriminalization, the federal government can still go after you. Um, He wants to expunge marijuana convictions. I think that's great great because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are in jail for marijuana convictions that might be part of like a three strikes law or something where maybe they did two other things that weren't related and marijuana was their third strike and it just doesn't make sense. Um, So that's a really good thing to expunge those convictions. Um, He also wants to reschedule cannabis, making it a schedule two substance. And in my notes, I have in all caps, are you fucking kidding me? Schedule two, that's not low enough, okay? If we need to keep it on the drug scheduling uh, program, it needs to be much lower because, yeah, it's it's because schedule two still has high potential for abuse, like not much medical benefit, et cetera. So it, that's not where it belongs. So there's, there's good stuff there, but unfortunately it just doesn't seem like enough. Um, but compared with his record on drug enforcement, it's a pretty big step in a progressive direction for him. Um, He did proudly author the infamous 1994 crime bill. Uh, This was legislation that increased penalties for drug-related crimes and is considered a main facilitator of mass incarceration. Um, I know that Ryan talked about this last time we had him on just like a little bit. Yeah. Uh, But that record is 
I'm sorry, that record is a point that Trump's re-election campaign seized on, calling Biden the architect of the drug war. And unfortunately, for the second time, I'm going to say mm, Trump wasn't exactly wrong about that. No. Uh, Twice in one. I hate, I hate saying that Trump's not exactly wrong about stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Biden, for his part, has conceded that his work on that punitive anti-drug legislation was a mistake. Like, and he actually used the word mistake. Uh, so I think that's that's really good. And for an old white dude in the position he's in to be able to step forward and be like, "Yes, that was a mistake." I think there's something to be said for that. Um, but I hate I it. I still don't think he was the right person <laughs> for the job. Um, no. And I, I wish that he would kind of look at the actual evidence. I, I think that he definitely is someone who's bought into the moralizing around drugs. And I'm not, I'm not happy about it. Um, he <laughs> I- is still staunchly against legalization for adult use. Um and rather than federal legalization, he wants to allow states to create their own laws, which, as we know, is a problem, because if it's still federally illegal, then that means a lot of people are still going to incorrectly assume that it's dangerous. Um, it would still stay in the drug scheduling um, up high there, and the federal government would still have the right to basically make life hell for people who are producing cannabis for medical or recreational purposes, even if they are abiding by their state laws. So, yeah. So Biden's, he's a little bit better than some other presidents have been, but not that great on it. And again, his administration has fired people for prior cannabis use and that's dumb. Although they also had some people work from home and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? If you had me work from home on that bullshit, you know what I'd be doing? Smoking all day. (laughs) Be blazing up. 420 all the time. Yeah. So that kind of brings us through like in a very (laughs) rushed and broad way, it kind of brings us through the political and federal issues regarding cannabis and i know i haven't covered absolutely everything but it gives you kind of a broader understanding of the history of cannabis in this country and what the drug war has done and what some of the more recent administrations have done um and to the olympics it does uh some of you who listened to our last episode will know that we at the end we're talking about some gen z's we're particularly proud of and Shikari Richardson was one of the Gen Z uh, people we talked about that we're really impressed with uh, because she's just a fantastic Olympian um, who's breaking records. Yeah, she's breaking records and she's also being herself and doing things a lot of other people aren't doing. Like she's, you know, she's wearing her acrylic nails and her false eyelashes and, you know, has a bright orange weave and like. It's just fantastic to see Olympians who are willing to actually have their own personalities. So many uh, tattoos. And so many tattoos. Yeah. And so it's just, it's great to see someone who's having her own personality and is willing to, to kind of say, no, I'm me, but I'm also really fucking good at this. I deserve to be here. Yeah. And what a lot of people will know is that Shikari Richardson is not going to the Olympics now because she tested positive for marijuana. So do her you want to talk about also dying? Well, like, her, it was after she found out that her mother had passed from a journalist. I didn't know that part. And then she yeah. went and ran like 
Yeah. What are we she, doing, she America? Out, yeah, yeah. She, she found out, like, not from her family uh, that that her mother, her biological mother, had passed away, and she was in. I think she called it a state of emotional panic, which is completely understandable for everyone. Uh, and she used marijuana in Oregon, where it was legal, uh, in order to deal with that pain that she was feeling. And I can guarantee you that if I was in that situation, I would have done the same damn thing. Because for some people, cannabis is a substance that really, really helps you deal with emotional pain or anxiety or depression like it helps you deal with painful situations in life. And I think she should have been allowed to do that because it didn't seem like she was even a habitual uh, user of cannabis. It was like she used it that time to help her. And because of the way that marijuana stays in the system, it was still in her, that like THC was still in her system at the time when she was drug tested. She was not, not under the influence of it when she was running. Let me tell you, also- like, it's not performance enhancing. If anything, oh, it would have made oh. her slower. Okay, so I've got oh, I've got some screenshots here of a letter that I would like to week? read. No, I okay. want to. This is specifically relating to cannabis, so I do. We're going to talk about that. the Olympics coming up soon. Yeah, so that we because there's a whole lot of shit about the Olympics, which makes me very sad because I love the Olympics. So this is what the USADA, which is the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, um, it's them and the World Anti-Doping Agency. Those are the the enforcement bodies that uh, that do the, the testing and they enforce bans and stuff like that. Representative Jamie Raskin and Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, they co-authored a letter to the USADA basically calling for this to be overturned and they were told... They're, they're basically told we can't because she's accepted it. And also it's not within our power to do so because it's based on the rules that the Olympic committee has, uh, has designed, which I, I guess that's probably technically true. Uh, but anyway, so this is what they have to say about marijuana being a performance enhancing drug. And I think it's very, very important, even though it's a very tiny part of the letter, it says, Also, the argument that marijuana has no performance-enhancing benefit in sports is not universally accepted by either the athlete community or anti-doping scientists. It has also been reported in scientific literature and and anecdotally by athletes that marijuana can decrease anxiety, fear, depression, and tension, thereby allowing athletes to better perform under pressure and alleviating stress experienced immediately before and during competition. So, basically, they're saying that marijuana is a performance enhancing drug because it can make you feel less anxious, less depressed, less nervous. You know what can also do that shit? Fucking antidepressants and anti-anxiety <laughs> drugs and things that are legal and totally okay by their own standards. If you're going to be a Olympian, you have to run with your own depression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. If, if you're an Olympian, you... <laughs> Well, no, basically it's if you're an Olympian, you have to deal with your depression by using pharmaceuticals rather than by using cannabis. You have to deal with your anxiety by dealing with, well, okay. Okay. It's okay. A lot of things are plants. 
I, I'm just going to, I'm going to say right here, a lot of things are plants. It doesn't mean they're good for you. I think, I think the argument that cannabis is a plant, is like a little bit silly for it being like, it's not really a good legalization argument because like rhubarb is a plant, but the leaves will poison you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. like yeah, there's right. the foxgloves, the flower, like the purple flower, like those are a plant, but if you eat them, they might kill you. Like it's, there's a lot of plants that aren't good for you. So like, yeah, it's a plant, but like it's the just, main thing just, is it's really not shown to be harmful. I know. It's just... And, and also there's anyone who has gone on any kind of uh, anti-anxiety drug, any kind of antidepressant can tell you from personal experience that it is no fucking picnic. Okay. If your body is getting used to even something as common as Zoloft, which I take, um, cause I use, I, I use pharmaceutical and cannabis, <laughs> uh, drugs to treat my depression and anxiety. Um, I can tell you that even just getting on the lowest dose of Zoloft that they give to an adult can knock you out and make you take you out of commission for like two days. That's what happened to me. All right. I was so dizzy. I couldn't stand up for more than like five minutes at a time. I got really sick. That's a thing that can happen. That is not a thing that very often happens with cannabis. So cannabis is something that you can use for occasional anxiety and occasional depression in a way that is not the same as a drug like Zoloft or Welbutrin or Xanax or like a bunch of the other drugs that people use for that. So I, I think that that's a really messed up point to make because what they're saying is you can use drugs to enhance your performance because they're saying that relieving anxiety and depression is enhancing performance. So they're basically saying you're allowed to enhance your performance, but only if you use drugs that we think are okay. And the reason we think we're, they're okay is based on moralizing lies and racism. Mm -hmm. Of course they don't say that last part, but yeah. They didn't have to. Yeah. And, and it is, it is really fucked up that, a black woman is getting targeted, especially because of the roots of racism in the prohibition of marijuana, um, particularly it's a black American woman. And let's remember who was Harry Anslinger targeting when he was saying that cannabis is terrible for everyone, mm. black people and Mexicans, yeah. like that's who he was targeting. So while I won't say that it's necessarily that she was targeted by being drug tested, um, I will say she sh it, it should never have been something that got this far. Okay. We really need to understand that cannabis for the most part, for most people is not going to be a harmful drug. Um, yes. Some things don't work well for some people. Some antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs don't work for every person. Okay. We need to view it like that and just say, this is something we need to reevaluate. We need to do research on it. We need to change laws so that research is more easy to do and people aren't like worried about their funding being pulled because they find something that's inconsistent with the lies that the federal government is spreading. It's um, also, I would also, no, go ahead. It's also upsetting because like we're a, a country that's known for wanting to win and be the best. And we gave up one of our best players over this. Like, yeah, yeah that's so un-American. <laughs> what are we she doing? Was supposed to, she was supposed to be able, still eligible to be on the relay team at a certain point, but she wasn't chosen for it. And I have absolutely no doubt that it was because of that failed drug test. Um, so I, I think that that is straight up discrimination, Marky. I guess. 
but yeah. Um, and, and I would, uh, I, I would definitely urge people to think about the relationship that, that the general public and particularly the Olympics have with alcohol versus with marijuana, because alcohol use, it, it's very prevalent among athletes because it's not something that they can get uh, taken out of the competition for, you know? So it's, it's much more likely that an Olympian who was like, quote unquote, playing by the rules, uh, if they were in a state of emotional panic, maybe would go and get blackout drunk because they know that that's not going to make them fail a drug test, but it's considerably worse for them and it's not going to help. Right. Um, and I, I would point specifically to, um, I don't have a huge knowledge of the Olympics in general, but I would point to uh, U.S., uh, I believe he was an alpine skier, Bodie Miller, uh, who, uh, I forget what year it was, but no, I'll, I'll update it on the next episode. But the crux of it was that he talked about the fact that he had, had uh, skied drunk during the Olympics. He wasn't penalized for that. Um, as far as I know, he wasn't like tested for alcohol, even after people knew that this was a thing. Uh, it, why is it okay for a white dude to be like, oh, yeah, it's really hard to ski drunk. I should know. But it's not okay for a black woman to like. Grieving. You, yeah, grieving. a grieving black woman who just lost her mother and found out in a really fucked up way to be able to relieve her pain by using cannabis. Um, it just, if you look at it in that way, it's, it's really messed up the whole thing. So uh, anyway. there's a lot that I was wanting to fit into this episode, but I think we did manage it, which is good. If you stuck around till the end, kudos to you. It's very yeah. nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a very long rant where I just get really upset. I care a lot about it for good reason. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I care a lot about it. And I care a lot about it because I have I have really benefited from using cannabis. And I say this in every cannabis episode that we do, but <laughs> I have really benefited from it. And I know that other people can as well. And it's really frustrating when, for example, like veterans with PTSD don't have access to something that's really good for PTSD, you know, because they have to go through the VA and the VA is a federal agency. And so they're anti-marijuana because, yeah, because, you know, because no reason. Just because. So it, it's frustrating to me to see that people can't even get the medical access. And also even in States with medical access, it really depends on what your state thinks that, you know, basically what your state thinks qualifies as a medical need. Um, so when we say like X number of states have uh, legalized uh, medical cannabis use, it doesn't necessarily mean it's for, you know, a whole bunch of different uh, ailments. It could be just one and just CBD, which in effect isn't really legalizing. But I digress. <laughs> so anyway in our, our next cannabis episode we'll probably talk more about um harm reduction models uh as opposed mm -hmm. to punitive measures because what yeah. we've learned about the war on drugs is that punitive measures like i.e just using law enforcement and punishing people does not tend to work as well as using a harm reduction model that doesn't make the user uh a criminal um yeah criminalizing people who need help who need help yeah i mean effectively that's what's going on and it's yeah. really messed up 
<laughs> uh, my Gen Z is still Shikari Richardson because it makes me sad. And Simone Biles yeah. for speaking in solidarity with her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually mine too. I was going to say Shikari Richardson as well just because, you know, she's, she's been in the news a bunch. And I, she's done a really good job at kind of taking all this in as a professional and I think she realized really quickly, like, I, I can't fight this and win. So I'm going to take yeah. responsibility and hope for the best. Um, and unfortunately, the best is not anywhere near what should be happening. Right. But the best that's available now, I guess. Yeah. So this was Joe Biden's response to the situation with Shakari Richardson. Uh, he said, rules are rules. And everyone know, knows what the rules were going in. Whether they should remain that way is a different issue, but the rules are rules. And I was really proud of the way she responded. And that's a nice enough thing to say. He's not really saying much. Like He's saying like, oh, maybe this should be reconsidered. But I, I think that would have been a really great time to say, this is an illustration of why we need to change drug policy in this country. And he didn't go for it because he still believes in the gateway theory. He still is firing staffers for using cannabis. So he said too bad. So sad. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things that makes you realize just because Trump lost, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods no. <laughs> in this country. Uh, we just have a flashlight. Yeah. yeah. So Shakari right. Richardson is our Gen Z of the week still because she yeah, because she needs extra love. She deserves better. She deserved to she deserved to be chosen for the relay based on just her performance um, as an athlete in general. And the fact that she wasn't chosen, I am sure, is because of the cannabis use and because of the moralizing surrounding it. And the fact that I think that they knew if they put her on the team that people who our anti-drug would think it was a horrible thing, but it's yeah. not. So. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week and uh, <laughs> go smoke some pot in uh, retaliation. We're not. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, not. just, we're not. If, if it's something that's good for you that you enjoy, go do it. And if it's not something that's good for you and you don't enjoy it, just don't try to limit other people's rights. Yeah. <laughs> that's the main thing. Just, don't try to limit other people's rights based on your morals or your limited experience of a drug. Like if you tried it one yeah. time in college and it wasn't for you, that's not a reason to keep it criminalized. So, all right. I am Rosie and facts really matter. <laughs> I'm hoping now that you know better, please be better. <laughs> Biden.